have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 17. If you're visiting with us, we've just begun a new summer series on uh, the ministry of Elijah. Some wonderful stories of God's greatness and goodness. This morning, we look at 1 Kings, chapter 17, verses 2 through 7. Uh, I'll actually read verses 1 to 7 to have a bit of the context Uh, But we'll be focusing on verses 2 through 7. Hear God's word. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land." Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask him to help us as we study his word. Father, would you show us marvelous, wonderful things in your word? Would you help us, O Lord, to trust you, to walk by faith, to know that you are always at work? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you have heard of Martin Luther's 95 Theses, the theological statements that he wrote in 1517 and nailed to the church door in Wittenberg as a a means of publishing them to his fellow clergy and uh, scholars in the church for debate and discussion. Uh, They were written in Latin and then translated into German and spread widely uh, throughout that area, uh, which made Luther a marked man with the Roman Catholic authorities. Uh, But do you know the rest of the story? For you see, in the the few years after 1517, uh, it was the books that Martin Luther wrote that really got him in to hot water. Uh, And so he was summoned to the the Diet, or the Assembly of Worms, uh, in 1521, uh, and he was told to recant his beliefs about the Bible and the gospel and the church. Faced with the possibility of death, Luther made his famous speech that ends with those words that perhaps you've heard before, I neither can nor will recant. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God, amen. But it was after this assembly that things really got interesting. On his way back from Worms to Wittenberg, Luther was kidnapped by a gang of bandits and taken to a castle in Wartburg. Now, fortunately, uh, these bandits happened to be the soldiers of Luther's king, Frederick of Saxony. And Frederick was kidnapping him in order to hide him away from the church authorities until the controversy surrounding him might die down. For nearly a year, Martin lived in incognito, in exile. No one really knew that he was there. Only a handful of people knew. He lived in this little two-room apartment. Uh, He grew a beard. He pretended to be a knight. Uh, and uh, he, it was a difficult time for him, as you can imagine, physically as well as spiritually. He, he likely was wondering, what is God up to? What is God doing? Why am I here? Right, why am I not able to go and to, to be amongst the people and to teach and to proclaim and to stand up for what I believe in? Well, God was up to something. 
Because during that year of Martin Luther's exile and hiding in Wartburg, he was translating the Bible from Latin into German. And the New Testament in particular during that year was translated so that God's people could read the word of God for themselves in their own language. Now in our text this morning, we have a a similar hiding away experience that happened to the prophet Elijah, but his exile was not merely due to the choice of a king, but to the command of Yahweh, the Lord. I hope you you realize that when you see the word Lord in all caps, uh, small caps, the way it is in our Bible translations, that is God's covenant name, Yahweh. Here we see that Elijah, like a flash of lightning in the night sky, as suddenly as he had appeared to Ahab, declaring Yahweh's judgment upon his idolatrous, syncretistic, spiritually adulterous people, so suddenly did he disappear. It was God's ultimate mic drop. Elijah had spoken his word, and he's gone. You see it there in verse 2. The word of Yahweh came to him, depart from here. I love the King James Version. Get thee hence. Right? Get thee hence. Depart from here. Turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. Now, what was God doing? What was God up to by telling his servant to leave Ahab almost as soon as he had begun his prophetic ministry? Well, this morning I want you to see three things uh, that God was doing in this episode of Elijah's life. First, God silences his word. Secondly, God sustains his word. And thirdly, God shows the strangeness of his ways. He silences his word, he sustains his word, and he shows the strangeness of his ways. First, God silences his word here. Why does God command Elijah to turn away from wicked King Ahab in Samaria and to go eastward toward this tiny brook near the Jordan River? Well, on first glance, you might think that it was for the same reasons why Frederick captured Luther to protect Elijah. He wanted to protect Elijah from Ahab and from Jezebel. But as we'll see in chapter 18, Obadiah, who feared Yahweh greatly, had hidden a hundred prophets of Yahweh in a, a cave inside of Israel. So why does God send Elijah to the border of Israel, even possibly across it? That that, that word east of the Jordan could also be translated near the Jordan. So we don't know exactly where the brook Cherith was, but it's possible that God sent Elijah outside of Israel altogether. Why did he do that? Why didn't he just hide him inside of Israel the way Obadiah was doing it? We're going to see in 1810 how Ahab had been searching for Elijah. Was he searching for him to kill him? Remember, Elijah had said that there would be no rain nor dew in Israel except by his word. Elijah held the key to the water fountains. So Ahab is searching for Elijah not to kill him, but to get him to, to speak that word to bring the waters again. So you see, this is not God's witness protection program to keep Ahab away from Elijah. Rather, God is hiding Elijah to keep Elijah away from Ahab. Remember who Elijah is. He's not merely some private individual believer. He is the prophet of God. He is the one who has stood before God, who stands before God. He is the one who had been commissioned by God to bring the word of God, the word of judgment to God's people. And now God has sent Elijah away 
The word of God has left the building, as it were. He's the only hope of removing God's judgment, and he is nowhere to be found. In Psalm 74, verse 9, we read this, There is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. See, prophets knew how long. How long would these judgments last? Put yourself in Ahab's sandals, sort of like us with our inflation crisis and supply chain crisis. We don't know how long it's going to last. Ahab had, knew, had no idea how long this drought and famine would last. And there was nothing that he could do about it, even though he was the king. All he knew right, is that it wouldn't end until Elijah said so. Now Elijah has disappeared. God had gone dark. God had ghosted Ahab and Israel as we speak today. He was giving them the silent treatment. He was amplifying his judgment by his silence. He was confirming to Israel that they were indeed under the displeasure of God, the wrath of God for their idolatry and their syncretism. Now, of course, when we give people the silent treatment, it's almost always sinful. But God is just and holy in all of his ways. He is withholding his word from his people, preventing them from entreating Elijah to remove the punishment. And thus God is prolonging the punishment. And why is he doing this? But ultimately so that they might see their sin, feel their sin, the weight of their sin, and turn back to God. What we have here in this story is a double famine, a famine of food and a famine of the word of God. As Amos would declare about the Israelites some hundred years later, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea, from the north even to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. That's what God is doing here. He is silencing his word. And doesn't God still do this even today, though we do not often or always see it? His word removed from the public square, removed from public discourse. And maybe you think God's going to judge us for that. But you fail to realize that in the removal of his word, God has already judged us. The very removal of the word is the judgment. If you don't want to hear what God has to say, then God will give you what you want. He will give you over to the autonomous desires of your heart. He will take away his word. God's judgment upon our country, whether for our country's syncretism and idolatry, whether for its sexual rebelliousness, whether for its denigration of life because of its presence in the womb due to my own economic concerns or its denigration of life due to the color of someone's skin, God's judgment is upon us taking his word away from us. It's plain for all who have eyes to see. But it's not just the world that God judges. He judges even the church. It is time for judgment to begin with the house of God. You know, over the past 40 or 50 years, what have we seen but a, a small modern reformation where the truth of the gospel, the truth that was recovered some 500 years ago, has been re-recovered, rediscovered. Pulpits have preached the word of God truly and faithfully, and yet... And yet around this country and around this world, the spread of false teaching, the spread of no teaching at all from pulpits fills the lands. Even think of the homes, maybe our homes, 
in which there are multiple Bible translations, multiple study Bibles, and yet has this multiplying of Bibles in our possession, has it truly and and really resulted in a more biblically literate people? Has it really given us a greater hunger and thirst to read and to study God's word, or has it merely made us feel secure in our own ignorance? Hey, we've got the Bible here. We can go to it whenever we need to. You see, if the Bible is absent from your daily life, if the Bible, if if you have lost your desire to, to read and to study and to know God's word, is it perhaps because God has withdrawn his word from you in judgment for your syncretism, for your idolatry? Maybe so. But if you are a Christian, never forget that beautiful word in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when we read, when we, his people, are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world. You see, God's judgments upon his church are his fatherly hand of discipline always for our transformation. Hebrews 12, he disciplines us for our good so that we might share his holiness. Even when we, his people, are suffering as a result of our sin, which sometimes is the case, God's grace never lets us go. Even if he has silenced his word in your life, if you belong to him, he will not forsake you utterly. And that brings us to the second point. For you see here in this story, God is not only silencing his word, he is sustaining his word. Yes, the Lord sent Elijah away as a form of judgment, but in his wrath, he remembered mercy. In spite of Israel's sin, he was not completely abandoning his people. And we see that in the fact that that God miraculously preserved and sustained Elijah, the prophet, in the drought. He gave him water. He gave him bread and and even meat. He did for Elijah what he had done for the rebellious Israelites as they wandered through the wilderness. It's wonderful, isn't it? That uh, God who created and who controls all things uh, keeps this little brook flowing for Elijah to drink from and, and commands ravens to bring Elijah food to eat. These omnivores who are scavengers and who, who greedily you know, eat and, 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 and gather for themselves, whether plants or meat, yet they obey the command of God twice a day to bring Elijah food. What an indictment upon supposedly clean Israel who had rebelled against God's word while these birds that, that according to Leviticus were unclean for Israelites to eat These unclean birds were obeying God. Now, who knows what sort of meat they might have brought in Elijah, uh, but I'm sure he cooked it up and ate it uh, with a thankful heart no matter what it was, right? But here's the question. Are we to apply this story of, of God sustaining Elijah, are we to apply it directly to ourselves, putting ourselves in Elijah's place? Well, God provided for Elijah. I'm a believer like Elijah was, and therefore God will provide for me. Well, I don't think so. Remember that during this time, the remnant of believing Israelites were not being provided for in this way. Those who were faithful like Obadiah and others didn't have a flowing brook. They didn't have ravens working for DoorDash, bringing them food every day. These faithful Israelites, this remnant They were suffering in Israel because of Ahab and Jezebel's wickedness, because of the wickedness of the majority of the people of God. 
prophets were being put to death. Yes, Obadiah had cared for a hundred and hidden them away in caves, but there was great suffering. There was famine. There was drought. You, you see, we have to be careful if we put ourselves in the place of Elijah, and then all of a sudden we realize that God is treating us the way he treated Obadiah and the remnant of Israel, then it's possible that our faith will fall into a Yazoo clay-sized pothole and not be able to get out. And we'll start to doubt the goodness and the power of God. God, why have you left me? Why have you abandoned me? Why aren't you treating me like you treated Elijah? So how do we rightly apply this text? Well, again, we must remember who Elijah is. He is the prophet. He is the divinely appointed messenger and bearer and bringer of God's word. I think the point is this. No matter what happens, no matter how depressing the state of God's people, God will provide for his word. His word will not go hungry. He will sustain his word. He will provide for it and keep it alive. Remember what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, though he was imprisoned, yet he says the word of God is not imprisoned, is not in chains. The word of God cannot be imprisoned. The word of God is free and will go forth. See, God's word will always accomplish what God sends it to accomplish. And God will always ensure that his word is sufficiently provided for to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. How encouraging this ought to be for us today. Even when God in his providence permits his church to be decimated through persecution or permits his church to suffer the ravages of his judgment along with the world. Isn't that what we're enduring these past couple years? All of us together suffering from COVID and the economic downfall and outflow of it. Even when the church is suffering, even if Pear Orchard Presbyterian Church no longer existed at some point, yet the word of God will be sustained somewhere, someplace in this globe of God's. The word of God will not starve. The word of God will go forth with power. And though like the people of God in Elijah's day, we don't see it, we don't know how it's happening, it might appear like God's word has fallen down dead, Yet Elijah at the brook Cherith shows us that somewhere, somehow, the word of God will endure forever. You see, God had not abandoned Israel. He was graciously sustaining his word for their sake so that in due time, Elijah might rise up and go forth in the third year and say, the discipline is over. I'm ready to send the rains again. Elijah still had a prophetic task to do And so God gave him food and drink in order that he might be alive to do that work that God had called him to do. And I think it's in that little point that we can apply this to ourselves indirectly. And what do I mean? As long as you still have a work for God left to do, the Lord will sustain you as well. As long as you still have a task for his kingdom awaiting you, As long as you still have opportunity to spread his word, the gospel of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal word, he will provide for your needs as well. You can trust him. You don't need to worry what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or how you're going to dress. You can seek first his kingdom, his gospel, his word, and you can trust him that all these things 
will be provided for us according to God's will so that until it is his will to take us home, he will give us what we need. God doesn't need us. And yet he chooses to use us. He chooses to use you to bring the word of God, whether to your children, your grandchildren, to your coworkers, to your friends, to your brothers and sisters, your father and mother. God uses us in spite of our sin, in spite of our foolishness. And therefore we can walk by faith, even in time of famine, even in time of drought, even in time of suffering. As confusing as it is, why God might be doing what he's doing. We can walk by faith. That brings us to the last point. God not only silences his word and sustains his word, God shows us the strangeness of his ways. We've already noted the the oddity that God would use these ceremonially unclean birds to provide for his prophet at this remote brook. But notice the strangeness of the very last verse. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Now, if that were me, I'd be saying, Lord, why did you bring me out here? And for this season, provided for me through this brook and then let it dry up. Like, that makes no sense at all. Right? Surely God could have kept the brook flowing or he could have done what he did with the Israelites in the wilderness and, and brought water from a rock. And yet God has another strange means that he wants to use to provide for Elijah. He is going to send Elijah, as we see there in verse 8 and 9, to a poor widow in Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon outside of the people of God. For he had commanded her to feed the prophet. Now, hopefully I'm not encroaching too much on Christian's passage next Sunday, but do you not see the strangeness of this drying up the brook in order to bring Elijah to a widow of Zarephath? Both, both parts of that are strange, both, both the widow and Zarephath. Right? The widow was the epitome of poverty. And yet God's going to command that widow to, to feed Elijah. And Zarephath, Sidon, outside of the, the land of promise. Do you remember what Jesus says in Luke 4? He says this almost to the, the point of his death. He says, look, there were many widows in Elijah's day. But God sent him to a widow outside of the people of God. He chose to bring salvation to her house. God's ways are strange, but his strange ways are higher than our ways. The brook dries up because God wants his word in Zarephath, because God wants a poor widow to provide for Elijah. And to quote Ralph Davis, isn't this vintage Yahweh? Isn't this the way that God so often tends to work? His ways don't always make sense to our tiny minds, but they are always wise. They are always good. Why did Job suffer so much? Why does Naomi lose her husband and her two sons? Why is not Elijah in Obadiah's caves with the other prophets of, of Yahweh? Well, there's several answers we can give to those questions. Perhaps they were unknown or unsatisfying in the moment, but we know that in God's mind, they are sufficient. Why did Job suffer as he did? Well, perhaps it was merely to teach us that suffering is not always due to sin directly and to magnify the majesty of God. As you read the book of Job, you can't come away from it without seeing the glory and the greatness of a God who is sovereign over all. 
Why does Naomi lose her husband and her sons? Well, one reason was so that Ruth might be brought into the kingdom of God and that through Ruth, the line of the Messiah might continue. Why does Elijah have to live in isolation from all the rest, in solitary confinement, as it were? Perhaps in part because as the chief prophet, as the main spokesman and the the major communicator of God's word to Israel in this season, he needed to be strengthened. He needed to be encouraged for the coming solitary conflict with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel so that Elijah could say, but God has fed me with ravens. God has fed me with a poor widow. Is there anything too difficult for God? No, not at all. The Lord's ways are strange, and yet he is always good. He is always working his sovereign will. Perhaps you've heard the illustration, even from my own lips, of of a woven tapestry. You look at a tapestry, and you look at the, the underneath side of it, and it's this chaotic, jumbled mess of thread, and you think that's what life often looks like. It's jumbled, it's chaotic, it looks out of order, it looks disarray. And you say, Lord, what are you doing? Why are you bringing me through this affliction and this suffering? And then you turn the tapestry over and what do you see but the the beauty of the picture that has been woven and sewn together. God is drawing a picture in our life that is glorious. We saw that didn't we, even in Luther's life, in isolation in Wartburg Castle, God is doing something amazing for the church. Haven't you seen this in your own life? Haven't you seen the way that God, you can look back and see the Lord was at work in ways that you did not suspect or did not know? A friend of mine from seminary was called once to be a pastor out in Los Angeles. On the way out to Los Angeles, somehow uh, there was an accident and he lost all of his possessions in a fire. He told me after that at first, you know, he thought, what good can come from this? And then he realized one of the things the Lord was doing, because he had no possessions when he landed or made it to Los Angeles, he was even more quickly able to get into the homes and into the lives of the people of God there in that church. As you can imagine, he has nothing The church rallies around him, brings him in for meals, brings him in, is able to to give him things. He files for insurance. He gets his his home goods back. But do you see what God is doing? He's binding the heart of a people and their pastor through this horrible providence, something that no one of us would desire, to have everything burned up, to lose everything. And yet God was at work. We sing it, don't we, in William Cooper's great hymn, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea. He rides upon the storm. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. God is showing us the strangeness of his ways. But for us who live on this side of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, The strangeness of God's ways shouldn't be that strange, should they? Because is there anything more strange than the truth that God would send his son into this world? The eternal word would come and take on human flesh and become a man to identify with us in our suffering. I think one of the reasons why God wanted Elijah to be by himself 
And to see that brook dry up was so that he too could identify more closely with the suffering of the people of God, even as he was being sustained. But Jesus came and identified with us to the point of death. He took our sin upon himself. He satisfied God's just judgment that was just a little bit foreshadowed here in the judgment of drought and, and famine. Jesus rises again as a conquering king. You see, Elijah was a foreigner of Jesus, but Elijah was just a prophet. He was merely a prophet, merely a man. And he wasn't the eternal word. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't a king. But Jesus, the prophet greater than Elijah, is also a priest, is also a king, is also God. Elijah couldn't change the hearts of the people he couldn't make them leave their Baal worship and turn to the Lord. But Jesus, the great prophet, priest, and king, the one who is fully man and fully God, has the power to change us by his Holy Spirit and by his word so, so that we might bear even more fruit. What does Jesus do? John 15 says he prunes us. You think, Lord, why are you hurting me? Why are you cutting off these branches? Why is my life filled with suffering? And Jesus says, I am pruning you that you might bear even more fruit. You may not see it clearly now. You may not understand what he is doing, but God is always up to something. He is always at work, even when his ways are strange and hard and difficult. And his purposes, even as we see here in the story of Elijah, are almost always bigger than our individual lives. God has an, an eye to his glory, to his word. God has an eye to the, the greatness of his plan for his people. As you think about your own life, think about it in light of what God is doing here in Elijah's life. As the prophetic word, yes, for a season he silences that word, but he is all along sustaining that word so that through his strange ways, he might bring glory to himself as his people see their sin. And as we'll see in weeks to come, repent and turn back to the Lord. May God do so in our lives as well. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are a God who loves your word even more than we do. Lord, you are a God who is at work always. Though we do not see it or understand it, though it makes no sense to us, Oh, yet, Lord, we can trust you. Give us grace, we pray, to walk by faith and not by sight. Lord, we thank you for the way you sustained Elijah. Lord, we ask that even if it is your will that we walk through seasons of deadness and dryness and drought and famine, oh, Lord, would you give us grace to trust and to know that you are working out your sovereign will for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.